Uh, Please open your Bibles, if you have not done that, uh, to the book of Exodus. Uh, The great thing about this is if you're unsure of where a book in the Bible is, Exodus is the second one. So it is really easy to find. And so please uh, open to the beginning of the book of Exodus. So in 1923, the film The Ten Commandments, directed by the legendary uh, Cecil B. DeMille, was released to great critical acclaim. Uh, It went on to become the second highest grossing film of the year, and it is still considered one of the greatest silent films ever made. And then just over 30 years later, DeMille would produce and direct another movie called The Ten Commandments. This one you're probably more familiar with, with Charlton Heston starring as Moses and Yul Brynner as the Pharaoh Ramses. This is widely considered one of the greatest films ever made, and still sits at number eight all time in, as far as money made when adjusted for inflation. Then in 1998, DreamWorks released the animated film The Prince of Egypt, also to critical acclaim and great box office success. At one time, this was the highest grossing non-Disney animated movie in history. Then in 2014, The director Ridley Scott released his Exodus, Gods and Kings, and the reviews and box office on this, more mediocre. So you can't win them all, apparently. Now, if you want to come across as like a movie trivia nerd, here's a good one for you. Name the two actors who have played both Batman and Moses, Christian Bale and Val Kilmer. I heard someone say it. Yes, Christian Bale and Val Kilmer. There's a little bit of movie trivia for you this morning. That was for free. Now, that Hollywood would continue to return to the story of Exodus for epic blockbuster movies shows that this book contains a very compelling narrative. The story at the heart of Exodus is one that we have found great resonance with and profound influence in. But the movie industry isn't the only place Exodus has exercised its influence. Both Christianity and the Jewish faith look to Exodus for deeply held theology and history. If you consider that if you go to the Supreme Court building here in the United States and you walk into the eastern side of the building on the eastern pediment, high above the door, you will see an etching of Moses holding the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, pointing to the influence of Moses as lawgiver, and the Ten Commandments as an influence in the morality of society. And then in our nation's history, whether it be from the Revolutionary War to the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement, those fighting for and longing for freedom have often drawn from Exodus for inspiration and hope. Exodus is truly a profound and influential book. But it's also rather controversial. For for decades and decades and centuries and centuries, The book of Exodus has been debated. Is this actual history? Did it really happen? And so historians and theologians and archaeologists and literary scholars have all been debating whether or not this was real or just inspirational myth. But what cannot be debated is from religion to history to law codes and morality to the fight for freedom to arts and entertainment, the book of Exodus has been profoundly influential in our world. Both believers and skeptics alike have taken great interest in it. But here's the question. What exactly does Exodus mean? What's the point of the book? 
all of the history from Israel being enslaved to Egypt to Moses and the, the plagues and the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea and the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and all the events and images and details that take place in Exodus. What does it all mean? How do we make sense of it? I'm guessing that some of you in here, maybe many of you have read the book of Exodus or parts of the book of Exodus. There's a few chapters where it starts getting into law code and you're probably like, yeah, I don't understand any of that. Let me pass, pass on uh, by that part. But I'm, I'm assuming you have some familiarity with it. What do you make of it? Like, like if you have read the book or watched the movies, what have you made of it? How do you understand the book of Exodus and its story? Well, this morning, as has been mentioned, we're beginning our fall sermon series in the book of Exodus. And Lord willing, it'll take us about a year and a half to go through this book. We'll be taking breaks uh, throughout to, to go into some other different series. But we're hoping in the next year and a half to be regularly returning to the book of Exodus. And this fall, uh, we are going to be covering chapters 1 through 15. So from the beginning, right on the other side of the Red Sea parting, and Israel being delivered. And so here's what I want to do this morning as kind of an overview to our series. I first, I want to introduce you to the main theme of the book of Exodus. I think this will help us in a number of ways. And then I want to talk about why Exodus matters, why we should study this book. But before we get into the, the main theme, here's what I want to do. I want to put all of our cards on the table here. I want to be clear up front that at First City Church, our official position is that Exodus is history. It really happened. It tells of actual historical people and actual historical events. What the book of Exodus records actually happened. Israel truly was enslaved to Egypt. Moses truly did live, and God appeared to him in a burning bush. The, the ten Miracles or the ten plagues actually happened in Israel. God caused those to happen. The Nile turned to blood. There was an infestation of frogs and gnats and flies. Livestock dropped dead. There was hail that destroyed the land. And the locusts came in and took out everything that the hail didn't destroy. There was actually supernatural darkness and the death of the firstborn. All of that happened. God truly split the Red Sea. Israel didn't just luckily find kind of this dry patch that they could walk through. No, God split the Red Sea like the automatic door at Walmart and then dropped it back on the army of, of Egypt, destroying them. All of that happened. But knowing and acknowledging that that happened isn't enough. Because we can look at these events in history and are still left with the question, what does it all mean? Like, what does this have to do with us? What does it mean in history? These events are not just sort of free-flowing kind of historical things that we can just fill in our own understanding and belief. Taking a what-does-it-mean-to-me approach to the Bible is always a bad approach, recipe for disaster. So for us, what we need to recognize is the book of Exodus doesn't just record these events. It actually also tells us what it all means. As the authoritative word of God, Exodus records and interprets those events for us. What it is left for us to do is be discerning readers, to read carefully and see what the book of Exodus has to tell us. And so what I want to submit to you this morning is that the central theme of the book of Exodus is this, rescued by the glory of God to live for the glory of God. 
rescued by the glory of God to live for the glory of God. Now, there are plenty of themes and theological truths and ideas and images going on in Exodus. It is a complex narrative full of rich truths and many layers, and we're going to talk about a lot of that over the coming months. But I want you to think of all of those other themes and truths and layers kind of like tributaries that are flowing into a central river. Or or as some have put it, the central theme is like a melodic line in music. And so you have all these different notes that are put together for a central melodic line. I want you to think of all that we do contributing to this central theme, rescued by the glory of God, to live by the glory of God. Now I want to show this to you in the next few minutes. I want to show you how this traces through the book of Exodus as the central theme. Because at each key moment in the story, we get this emphasis, the glory of God. But we get a particular emphasis that God is the Lord. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign creator of all things. And it is right to acknowledge him and worship him as the God and the Lord. As God and Lord. And so as Eric Goodell reminded us a few weeks ago, the, the word glory, it means, literally means weight in Hebrew. It's something that is glorious, has weight to it. It has value, it has worth to it. And so to see the glory of something is to see the full weight and worth and value of that thing. And to glorify something is to acknowledge and affirm that thing has worth. That has weight, that has value, and now I give my life, I worship, I celebrate, I sacrifice, I give all of my life to rightly honor the worth and the value and the glory of that thing. Over and over and over, Exodus emphasizes the glory of God, the glory of the Lord in key moments of the story. So the Lord rescuing Israel from Egypt. This is really the high drama part of the story. This is the narrative that we are most familiar with. Listen to what God tells Moses in Exodus 6. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from the slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. Why is God going to rescue Israel from Egypt? Yes, because he loves them, and he makes that clear, but so that they would know he is the Lord. So they would see his glory, his worth, his value. They would know him for who he truly is. He is going to rescue them. Think of it this way. God is going to flex on Egypt. He's going to flex on Israel and show them who he truly is. And when he does that, what is the result? Rescue for his people. Rescued by the glory of God. But it won't just be Israel who sees the glory of God. In chapter 7, verses 4 and 5, God again promises rescue for Israel, but notice who he says is going to know he's the Lord this time. But I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. Not just Israel is going to know that God is the Lord, Egypt is. All of those plagues, all of those miracles, the parting of the Red Sea, all of that is so that Egypt would know God is the Lord. 
that he is the glorious one. He is the one that is worth all the weight and the glory and the worship. Not their false gods, not the power of their empire, but the Lord. And they're going to know that through his redemption and rescue of his people, rescued by the glory of God. Now, when God parts the Red Sea, his final act of rescuing Israel from the Egyptians, here's what he tells Moses in Exodus 14. Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As for me, I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them, and I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army, his chariots, and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God makes it very clear. He's going to receive glory through Pharaoh and his army. And how is he going to do that? It's when he drops the Red Sea on them, utterly destroying them and defeating them. His final act of redemption for Israel over Egypt. And what is that? It is a sign of his glory. It's a sign of who he truly is. Who is the true God? The Pharaoh that in Exodus 5 says, who's the Lord? I don't know who that is. Why should I listen to him? That same Pharaoh sees the glory of the Lord as the water is falling on him. He knows who the Lord is now. He knows the glorious one. Who is the one that has all weights and worth and value and glory? It is when God glorifies himself, his people are rescued and redeemed, rescued by the glory of God. Time and again, Exodus makes this clear. Let me give you an example because I don't know if I've convinced you yet. That was a joke, sorry. Sorry. (laughs) after being rescued from Egypt, Israel begins their trek through the wilderness to the promised land. And shortly after their journey, they begin to complain, oh man, there's nothing to eat. There's nothing to drink. We're going to starve out here. Moses, why did you lead us out here to die? What has the Lord done? Has he abandoned us? They start complaining. They start crying out. And here is how God steps in. Here's what we read in Exodus 16. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Just as a side note, isn't isn't that that interesting? God even hears when we complain. His grace meets us there. That's, That's for a future sermon, but as Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness, and there in a cloud the Lord's glory appeared. The Lord spoke to Moses, I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. His glory shows up in the cloud that's leading them, flashes his glory, and then he gives a word of salvation. I'm going to step in. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to rescue you from your hunger and your thirst. And there's that line again you will know that I am the Lord. The Lord is going to flex his glory and Israel will be rescued. Rescued by the glory of God. But they're not just rescued by the glory of God. They're rescued for something. God doesn't just rescue them, say, hey, you're free now. You're free to go. Go enjoy your freedom. Chase your dreams. Live, make the most of your life. No, he rescues them so that they may live for something far greater than self, far greater than chasing their own dreams and living life to the fullest. He's going to rescue them so that they may live for his glory. In Exodus 8, when Moses goes to Pharaoh 
to demand that he let Israel go. Here's the words he gives to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. The Lord says to Pharaoh, let my people go so they can live not for the glory of Egypt, but for my glory, so they may worship me. Then in the Ten Commandments, that great law code, those principles of morality that were going to define how Israel was to live. Here's how those Ten Commandments start. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. I am the Lord. I'm the glorious one. I'm the one with all the worth and the value and the weight. I'm the one who rescued you by my glory. In light of that, have no other gods before me. Live for the glory of no other. Live for my glory. Rescued by the glory of God to live for the glory of God. And what's beautiful is that for Israel to live for the glory of God meant this, the blessing of having God's very glory and presence dwell with them. It was the glory of the Lord and dwelling with them that defined the people of Israel. See, God didn't just rescue Israel and say, all right, you guys are free. If you need anything, call. If you need any help, let me know. But you guys go do your thing. I'm bouncing back up into heaven and we'll be on our way. No, God redeems them. He rescues them in order to dwell among them. He gives, this, gives them this great promise. And all throughout Exodus, we see God's intent to dwell with his people. And this whole issue with the tabernacle, when we get to the tabernacle in later chapters, all of that was about constructing a, habit, a, hab, a place where God could live. You see, for God to dwell with his people and his holiness not nuke them, they, they, there needed to be some way that God could come and there'd be sort of a, a filter, something that would be between God's glory and holiness and the people. God is infinitely and utterly holy. The people of Israel were not. They were sinful. But in the tabernacle, God could dwell with his people. His presence could be with them. It was the glory and his presence that they would live by. Listen to how Exodus ends. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the cloud represents God's presence. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Israelites set out whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire inside the cloud by night visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. It was the glory of the Lord that dwelt with them in the tabernacle. It was his presence and power that marked them and defined them as the people of Israel, as the people of the Lord. And it was his glory, his presence that led them, led them through the wilderness, led them into the promised land, led them in how they were to live their lives. God's very presence with his people. His glory was their life, rescued by the glory of God to live for the glory of God. So again, Exodus is this long, rich, complex book. It's full of themes and theological truths, and at times it can be easy, really easy to get lost in the weeds of what it all means. And so what I hope is as we are going through this, as you are reading, as you're studying, 
that this theme, rescued by the glory of God, to live for the glory of God, helps you sort of make sense of the whole, helps you to kind of think through, how do I fit all these pieces together? If I'm lost in the details, well, I know in some way, shape, or form, it connects to this main idea, and that will help you more greatly understand this book. And so with this central theme in our minds, I want to conclude our time by just highlighting some reasons why the book of Exodus matters. If this is the theme, rescued by the glory of God, to live for the glory of God, why does it matter? Why does it matter to study? Why do a study on the book of Exodus? Well, here's the first reason. The book of Exodus reveals our need for rescue. Like, look, like the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, we're a people in need of rescue. Like, we are enslaved to our sin. We know what it means to be enslaved to our sin. But we know what it means to be enslaved to things like selfishness and pride. We also know what it means to be enslaved to things like fear and anxiety. But we have experienced the affliction and being scarred by the sin of other people. We know what it means to experience the affliction and even oppression at times of the evil in our worlds. We are a people in need of rescue. Here's the question for us, though. Do you acknowledge that need? Do you admit your need? Do you see that you have a need for rescue? Or are you like, nah, I got this. Like, I got it. I got this on my own. But do you believe that your power, your wisdom, your education, your skill sets, your resources are enough to unshackle you from what enslaves you? Do you believe you are enough or do you acknowledge that you need rescue? Exodus matters because it shatters the delusion of self-sufficiency and points us to our need for rescue. Second, Exodus matters because it reveals a glorious covenant-keeping God. When God first shows up to Moses, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I made a promise to those three that I was going to make a great nation out of their descendants, and I was going to give those descendants a land that they could call a home, and I'm here now, Moses, to make good on my promise. God rescues Israel because he is a covenant-keeping God. He is faithful and true. He does not go back on his word. He does not falter. He does not fail. When God gives his word, he keeps his word. Do, do you need someone to keep their word in your life? I mean, do, do, do you long for someone to actually follow through on a promise that they've made? Do, do you need someone who is faithful and true? Someone who will stand faithful and true even when you're a hot mess, even in the midst of your sin and your lack of faith. But like, here's the beauty of God's covenantal faithfulness. When Moses was complaining and afraid, God was still faithful. When Israel was complaining and afraid and chasing after other gods, God was faithful. Like, do you need someone who is faithful and true, even in the midst of your sin? Someone who will forgive and redeem and rescue and renew you? Well, the God, covenant-keeping God who is faithful to Israel is the same covenant-keeping God who is faithful to people today. And Exodus reveals that to us. Exodus shows that God is a God. When he gives his word, he keeps his word. Exodus matters because it shows us that the glorious God who rescues, he is faithful. 
and that we can run to him for our rescue. Third, Exodus reveals our call to live for the glory of God. And here's where it really starts hitting home. Because we love the story of rescue and redemption. We love that, and we should. But Exodus also confronts us with this question, what glory are you living for? What do you live for? What glory, what worth, what value, what weight, what, what, what has that for you? Like what most defines your identity? What most defines what you put your hope in? What most defines your family and your relationships and your work? What defines success for you? What do you run to when things fall apart and put your hope in that that is going to fix what's broken in you in the world? What glory do you live for? Does the glory that you live for, does it lead, like honestly, does it lead to deep soul-level joy? soul-level peace and comfort. I'm not talking about removing all problems from life, removing all sin and suffering from life. I'm talking about when that stuff hits, there is still an anchor in your soul knowing that there is something that has me. And that is worth living for. What is it for you? I think if we're honest, if we're honest, we know, we know that too often we live for the glory of self. We live for the glory of self. We live to define our identities ourselves, that our families and our relationship and our work is all about the glory of us or the glory of comfort and pleasure and success. We put our hope in our own ability and our own intellect and our own education and our own skill sets. Or we put our hope in other people who are just as frail and faulty and sinful as we are. Like we define right and wrong for ourselves Oh, we so often chase after the glory of other things and look at the damage it does. Why Exodus matters? Exodus matters because it exposes our self-glory as empty and powerless. It points us to an infinitely greater glory, the glory of God, and it invites us and calls us to live for that glory. Fourth, Exodus matters because it reveals the glorious God dwells with his people. God dwells with his people. God declares his intent to dwell with his people, and he dwells with his people, the infinitely glorious and powerful God. And I love the the reference that Thomas made to the glory of God descending on the mountain in the book of Exodus, and it sets a mountain on fire. That presence, that glory, that holiness dwells with his people, up close and personal. God dwells with his people, and even in the book of Exodus, we see this. As their God, yes, but also as their father and as their friend. What would it do? How would it change your life? What would it do to your life if you more deeply believe that God dwells up close and personal with his people? How would it change where you put your hope? How would it change the way that you live your life as you think about walking in godliness and righteousness, if you knew God is up close and personal? Well, what would it do to your relationships? Well, what would it do to the peace and comfort that you have in times of struggle and trial? How would it change our times of Sunday morning if we continue to grow more deeply in believing that God dwells with us here? 
What would it do to your gospel community? And as messy and as frustrating as that can be sometimes, it's great too, but let's just be honest, sometimes it is hard. But what would it do to, for, for you to recognize that God dwells up close and personal in your gospel community? How would that change the way you engage your gospel community? How would it change life in your home How would it change your marriage and your parenting, believing the very presence of God, the very presence of God that set a mountain on fire dwells in your home? (laughs) How would that change things? What would that do? Exodus matters because it declares to us, it reveals to us the good news that God dwells with his people. The glorious God dwells with his people. And finally, Exodus matters because it reveals to us the glory of God in Christ. As Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 24, all of the Old Testament scriptures ultimately point to him, and this includes Exodus. Over and again, the images and the objects and the events in Exodus find their ultimate meaning and fulfillment in Christ. Here's just a few. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is our Passover lamb who's been sacrificed for us. Christ sacrificed so that judgment would pass over us and we would be set free from slavery to sin and death. In Matthew 2, the Gospel of Matthew equates Jesus as a young child coming out of Egypt with Israel coming out of Egypt. But where Israel was a disobedient child coming out of Egypt, Jesus was a perfect, obedient son coming out of Egypt. The bread from heaven that God provides Israel in the wilderness and the water he provides from the rock. And John 6 says, Jesus says, I am the true bread who has come down from heaven. If you eat of me, you're never going to die. And he says, I am the true and living water. And if you drink of me, living water will spring from up inside of you life. He will give you eternal life. Jesus is the provision that those things pointed to. God in providing for Israel was pointing to an even greater provision he was going to give in Jesus Christ. Those are just a few. And when we look at the central theme of glory, this is when it gets really good, really good. Again, as Thomas, man, it must have been the Spirit this morning, Thomas, because you're making some good references, but as the Apostle John writes in the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word in the Greek dwelt literally means housed, or tabernacled. You hear what John is saying? (laughs) The very presence of God that set a mountain on fire, that tabernacled with the people of Israel in the glory cloud, he's come down. The word was made flesh, Jesus Christ, the glory of God dwelling among us. And this is what John goes on to say. We observed his glory. We saw his glory, the glory as one, as the one and only son from the father, full of grace in truth, that the glory, that glory, that tabernacled with Israel has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that not a glory cloud covered in a veil, covered in a tabernacle, no, but up close and personal so much that God became a man. God in the flesh, the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And then listen to how Jesus equates the glory of God in salvation in John 17. Jesus spoke these things, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. 
since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus says, Father, glorify me so that I may glorify you. What is the result of the Father and Son glorifying each other? Eternal life for you and me. Salvation, rescue, redemption. When the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father, we get rescued. Rescued by the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Just as God rescued Israel through his glory, he rescues us now through his glory. And here is what's even better. Man, think about this. Wouldn't you have liked to have seen, well, maybe you'd like to have seen the plagues. That, that might have been kind of cool to see, but also might have kind of scary. But just think of this, how amazing and how crazy that would have been. Like the glory of God put on display through these miracles, working through the power, the power of nature supernaturally. Wouldn't it have been incredible to see the Red Sea split in half? I mean, these are remarkable miracles, remarkable displays of the glory of God that I think it would have been like, wow, what amazing to see that. But here is what Scripture makes clear. Those are but shadows of the substance that is Jesus Christ. As great as the glory of those things and the glory of God put on display in those things, his glory has been put on to even greater extent in Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. And who do we get? We get Christ. We get to be united with Christ through faith. We get to experience the glory of God, as crazy as it sounds, in a way far greater than even the Israelites. That's through Jesus Christ. Why does Exodus matter? Why does studying the book of Exodus matter? Because as the book of Exodus reveals the glory of God and salvation there, it points us to the ultimate glory of God and salvation in Christ. This is why Exodus matters. And in this way, Exodus is kind of a prequel, kind of a prequel to the gospel. You know, prequels done well, they, they give us a deeper understanding of events and characters. So a great example of a sequel, or a prequel, excuse me, in a book is The Hobbit. A great example of a prequel in a movie is Captain America, the First Avenger. Great prequels. A terrible example of a prequel is Star Wars Episodes 1 through 3. Sorry. They're terrible. They're better than, you know, 7 through 9, but they're still terrible. But what do the best prequels do? They show events and the development of characters. They, they give meaning to that character, or a better understanding of, of who that character is and why they do what they do. Important events that sort of mark them and give meaning to their life in the present. And so when we look at the book of Exodus and all its imagery and all its meaning, and we see how that connects to Jesus Christ, we more fully understand who God is, the greatness of his glory, and the fullness of his purpose to redeem all things through his Son. Studying the book of Exodus gives us a glimpse into the gospel so that we may understand it more deeply. That is why Exodus matters. And so church, I am excited to journey through this with you. I am so excited to journey through this with you. My, my hope and my prayer is that we would behold the glory of God in his word, 
we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and that our lives would be transformed. That we would be a people defined by the glory of God who live for the glory of God. May the book of Exodus, may God's word do that for us. And if you're here this morning, and maybe you're skeptical of this, maybe you're thinking, yeah, no way this is history. I got too many questions, too many issues, too many wrestles here to take this as history. Hey, one, I would say, great, I'm glad you're here. And there are things about the book of Exodus that we're just not going to have time to get into to, to answer all the questions and objections. But here's what I, I, I would encourage you to do. Here's a, a dare, if you will. One, I would love to just sit down with a cup of coffee or grab a beer or grab lunch or breakfast. Let me, let me, let me take you out and just sit down and let me hear your objections. Here are the questions you have. Let's just talk about those. I, I would love to have that conversation. But more than that, I want to encourage you to keep coming back on Sundays. I want to encourage you to keep coming and listen to the story of Exodus and see if it does not resonate. Even if you start off just believing it's this cool myth, that just listening and seeing if it does not resonate in some ways. And see, maybe if not, your heart would be changed and transformed. Maybe, maybe you begin to see the story of the glory of God in rescuing a people, and a people being transformed into that image, and a people living for the glory of God, and all their messes, and all their mistakes, and all their suffering, and maybe, just maybe, your heart may change. Something might happen. I dare you. I double-dog dare you, or triple-dog dare you, but come and experience that, and see what the Lord does. See what happens. After God brings Israel through the Red Sea and finally defeats the Egyptians, Moses leads Israel in a song of celebration. And my hope and prayer is that after studying Exodus, this would be our song too. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. Let's pray.